Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, out, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me as I'm going to be speaking with Ben Scales, who's one of the co-founders of Kiwi Fiber. And they're a startup which I've been journeying with right from the beginning as I've been providing them with legal support. So I really enjoyed the chance to get to know Ben a bit better, just to find out about his background. And also he was willing to talk about some of his failures and how that actually opened up new opportunities. If you enjoy this podcast, then check out some of the others in the back catalog. Seeds is a project where I'm trying to interview inspiring people, now up to more than 350 of them. And if you haven't subscribed yet, then please do so. And you can find out a lot more information in the show notes, including about Kiwi Fiber and also about Seeds. There's a brand new revamped website at theseeds.nz, so I'd really love it if you can check it out and drop me a line if you like it. Now I'm glad to present this conversation with Ben. All right, well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Ben Scales, who's the co-founder of Kiwi Fiber. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. I'm really excited about this because we've known each other a while now, and I've kind of seen from the grassroots what's going on here at Kiwi Fiber, and I'm actually really excited about the industry that you're a part of because it's one of those ones that has a historical legacy, but then it's kind of being reinvented today. So we're going to get into that. We're going to learn about Harakiki and you know what the future could be. But before we do that, I always like to jump in that time machine over there and find out a bit about your story. So could we go back to, say, when you were five or six years old, what was life like for you? Oh, it's a while ago now, but also not that long ago. So I grew up in a, quite a few different places around. I think I, ended up, I think I ended up going to like five or six different, um, different uh, primary and intermediate schools. So I was really exposed to a lot of different people and thinking and and ways of doing things and ways of ways of life so I grew up um, in a place called Waiuku and outside of um, outside of Auckland uh, I went to a tiny school there um, called Malku school it was like maybe a hundred people and that ended up being like the average size school that I went to because there were like four different country schools and um, yeah so we grew up I grew up um, on a small farm out there um, and my I guess I spent most of my days trying to learn to ride a bike on Kaikuria grass I remember that because it was just always kind of an interesting thing um, spent a lot of time with making model airplanes and that kind of thing because my family's always been into aviation and I've come from a family of engineers that's what I ended up getting into when I went to university but ended up doing something very different um, but yeah I've got this I've got some pretty awesome memories of making things and um, trying new things and being part of my dad's engineering projects and because um, I had small fingers so I could actually get inside you know an airplane fuselage and tighten up little little bolts um, where he couldn't get so yeah I've got some interesting memories so so it sounds like your father was a big influence in terms of that side of things, because we're going to get into what you do today, and a lot of mm. it does come back to machinery, you know, and, yes. and, and making new products and things. Yeah. But what, what, tell me about your father. What was he doing? Why was he into that? Um, so my, my granddad was into that, um, actually, as well. He, um, 
would buy crashed aircraft and basically restore them. Um, and I always really looked up to that. And then I ended up like really being into cars and planes. And then my other, the my mum's side of the family was into boats. And so there was cars and planes and boats that I was always exposed to. And so I, re- I really enjoyed anything that kind of moved, I guess, like a lot of other, uh, a lot of other people. Um, and yeah, so I would always spend my time like with dad in the shed and, you know, playing with the scraps of wood or the, um, the scraps of, um, steel tube or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to see what I could make from that kind of stuff. So that's when the model airplanes kind of came in and, then eventually like tree huts and um, yeah, all that kind of thing. So starting with sticks and stones as a kid and just gradually, you know, falling in love with the process of creating and adding value to things really. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And was your father like his job? Was it something along those lines as well? Or was this a hobby that he was really into? Well, dad works in um, the the aviation industry as well, Mm -hmm. but within the kind of, bureaucratic side of it which he um enjoys sometimes and doesn't enjoy other times and that's when he gets the um you know he comes home and actually is able to get his hands on airplanes and that's that's always been a um big part of my growing up and um yeah that's what he's that's what he's been into yeah yeah that's great and what was it that was causing you to move the schools was that because of job reasons or Oh, just just general life, really. Um, my family moved down to Christchurch for a wee bit, um, and for various reasons that didn't work out. And then we managed to move back to Auckland um, a couple of years before the earthquakes, which turned out to be kind of a blessing in disguise, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, then living in Auckland is, was always kind of an interesting thing because. There's a lot of different parts, and it's it's experienced a rapid amount of um, like societal change and growth in the last ten years, and so um, yeah, for various reasons, we've just ended ended up in different places, and then therefore exposed to different things, which has been part of my personal learning as well. Mm. And what do you think it did for you moving, you know, school to school, like because you have to make new mm. friends, right? You have to go out of your way I guess to yeah. get to know new systems well at times I didn't have many friends and then at other times I had lots of friends um, which was good because I ended up meeting different people many of which I you know I'm still really good friends with today um, and I kind of got used to change and I think that's been an interesting thing in my um, in my more recent years as well um, like people either generally do or don't like change and I've come to like it really which has become which has probably become kind of motivational factor in building a startup as well because I really like like first in the first instance I really enjoy the process of changing something that already exists and is quite well established but then at the same time I also don't mind the uncertainties that come um, with you know building startups and doing new things, um, so I guess that's built in a bit of that resilience. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting to think about our life stories and then yeah. who we are today, 
and then what's shaped what's shaped us mm. and that's why i asked the question because you know the work that you're doing today as an entrepreneur and, and there is a lot of change you have to be able to switch quickly you know to adapt to what the market needs and i often wonder if some of those childhood experiences end up coming through later on as being like probably wouldn't be the way you are if you hadn't had those disruptions as a young child yeah that's not actually something i've thought about but i guess when you move to a new school and you're like six years old and you're pretty nervous you've got to learn to adapt in a new environment with new conditions and i guess if you mirror that to now there's quite a few similarities there yeah yeah yeah. well that's the beauty of the podcast is these moments i actually love because when the guest realizes something about their own life Mm. you know that's like oh yeah it's a weird symmetry there (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so coming through you know into more teenage years and things did that love of engineering side of things you know taking things apart building them i'm guessing that continued or yeah what were you really into at that point yeah, so around then I got into sport a lot more as well, uh, which I think was kind of a, a reflection on, um, I guess, just the different phases you go through as a, as a teenager. Um, I'm sure my mum has different perspectives on me as a teenager, but um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was I, I kind of kept going with many of the many of the passions I had when I was I was much younger. Um, really got. Then I ended up getting my driver's license. And then I was into cars a bit and um, and playing around with that side of things. And then I met a bunch of friends at high school who um, were even more into cars and planes than I was. And then I was exposed to different things. Like I've got some really cool memories of you know sitting in the um, like one of the most recent. Um, mosquito restoration projects which is an amazing wooden natural fiber um world war ii plane and mm-hmm. like i've got photos of that and it's just like something that's just really stuck in my memory um and then like you know sitting and, and watching um like spitfire test test flights and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um that's been yeah some really some really awesome memories there from just people that i ended up meeting at meeting at school and then we spent weekends you know out at the aerodrome or in my friend's garage just kind of doing stuff Mm. yeah yeah that's great well it sounds like it was very practical you know you were actually watching things but then building them as well yeah but at the same time I was kind of more into the the industry of it and the people and decisions and thinking involved than the actual practical side because I was actually never that good at many of it right um, I, I can I, I there's there's a certain amount on cars and planes that I could do but then there was a lot that was just like way out of my scope yeah so like I guess I grew up quite practical but I was also never that amazing at it because um, I was I've always been a bit of a generalist in a way mm-hmm. and so the skills that I have and that's in general are more focused towards different like so many different aspects and mm-hmm. Um, yeah and then late in my teenage years as well I kind of discovered that I was a bit of a generalist Mm. so you know a lot about many things rather than in depth on I'm not that great at lot I'm not that great at many things but I'm quite good at a lot of different things right (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's great well the interesting thing just what you're saying there as well you know natural fibers being used in an airplane Mm. I hadn't heard anybody say it that way but Mm. when you think about it it's true because um, my great grandfather 
um, in 1909, he was living in America, and his brother was in the U.S. military, and they were conducting trials of the Wright brothers' airplanes. So this was to see if the U.S. government would buy the airplanes. So I've got the pass. It still says it's an amazing <laughs> thing. It's like a family treasure, you know, and it says 1909 aeronautical trials. So my great-grandfather, Robert Conard, went to these trials, and of course, the airplane that they were using was literally wood and cloth, mm -hmm. and you know there was a motor, but it wasn't the way we think of it today. Yeah. Anyway, he wrote a letter and um, r described seeing a person in the air and how unbelievable it was. You know, like I I've seen the future, um, and just echoing what you're saying, like to think about the the materials that were used to construct. You know, these were bicycle builders who built an actual flying machine. It, yeah. it must have just Incredible. blown people's <laughs> minds, right? Yeah. 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 And, and, and there's kind of a bit of a theme there as well, because like we, there's, there's been a bit of a thing in the last couple of decades where the adoption of what once was, you know, hundred years ago is coming back for the same reasons that it was used in the first place. Mm. Um, and, yeah, like you've, if you like the term or the, the the thought now of using natural fibers in a you know aeronautical application is kind of kind of bonkers. Even though that's what I try and you know sell a vision of to people mm -hmm. every day, but it's where those industries started. Mm -hmm. You know, all the all, all the boats and and planes and cars. Like there was a hemp composite car built by Henry Ford before before there was any car, um, and yeah, that's that's where everything started, and so starting to see things like that come full circle is really mm. neat. Well, that'll be a theme of this particular episode, I think, because we're going to talk about what you're doing and the fact that there was an entire industry like 150 years ago Absolutely. that was focused on this. So I want to get there. So let's keep going through your life. <laughs> so how did you end up at Canterbury, you know, studying engineering? Was that a natural place that you wanted to go to? Or yeah, talk us through that. Yeah, so I always had a kind of special connection to Christchurch. Like, I've got a lot of family down here. My grandparents, aunties and uncles are still all down here. My mum grew up in Christchurch. Um, and so I got quite used to the Auckland to Christchurch flight. Um, it was always kind of a second home. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, I always knew that I wanted to you know, come back here and live here because it was less traffic and well and um people that i knew here from school and all that kind of thing um so yeah when i was weighing up all the decisions of what to do after school there was like university or actually air traffic control was something that i was want was quite seriously considering mm -hmm. um and then covid ended up wiping that off the table but um yeah so i was weighing up all the different decisions after uni just like every other year 13 kid and um then I thought about Canterbury because of the obvious um, connection that I had to Christchurch and none of my friends were going there. They were all either going to do trades or were going to Wellington or Otago and I thought, you know, why not just start in a city with, you know, very little people that I knew mm. because, again, that change and, you know, starting to grow something in you know, out of nothing, um, was quite appealing to me. Mm -hmm. And so moved down to, or applied for halls and all that kind of thing, moved to 
moved down to Christchurch um, and settled in and started um, engineering. And I didn't actually do calculus at high school, but my stats teacher had the utmost faith in me. And she was like, Ben, you know, email me your questions and I'll, you know, tutor you over email or Zoom or whatever. I don't think even Zoom was a thing back then in 2018. Um, or at least it didn't have the market share. But any, anyway, so I went and did engineering and I remember I was called up to a meeting with the um, principal of the hall who they did um, uh, like progress tracking meetings every every now and then. And yeah. um, long story short, he told me that I had one of the lowest GPAs in the hall because I was failing my um, bridging maths paper. And I was like, oh, this is, this is not going well. <laughs> but I was really enjoying the problem-solving nature of it. Right. And so the general engineering course, which was like actual solutions, and we were learning about flight in one of them, um, like the flight formula and, um, and solutions at a really holistic level of how to get rid of house flies. And I was doing great at those. But it was just the maths that was letting me down. And I was starting to realize that it was more of a maths degree than an actual engineering degree. Right. And my... There was like five bins at that hall. Anyway, down the hall from me, um, down the hallway on my floor was a, another guy called Ben who was, in doing, who was doing industrial design and he had a pretty cruisy, um, cruisy timetable. And, but that was because it was kind of like quite autonomous um, and very project-based, which ended up being more me, but I didn't know it at the time. So mm-hmm. I stuck at engineering for two years, trying to do the first year. Didn't really get anywhere. Um, and then I went and talked to, oh, I went and begged um, the one of the made the big professors um, in industrial design to let me into the course late because um, it was like five weeks in and you had like three weeks to sort out your papers or something like that. And I was like, oh, Tim, can you can you please uh, let me into the course? And he was like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, I joined um, the industrial design course at um, University of Canterbury and yeah, fell in love with that a lot more because it was a lot more, it, it ended up mimicking the startup process quite well, like it focused on a problem and then you talked to people who had that problem and you empathised with them and understood it and then you would go and brainstorm how to solve it on a holistic level, not thinking about a product or a, or a solution but more the thinking around how to solve it and then you build a prototype and then you'd you know go back to the first phase and like does this solve the problem and then that's you know it's a problem solving degree that's what it ended up being with a side focus on like the materials and processes involved which ended up being incredibly relevant um and yeah it it encapsulated what i was interested in Mm. a lot more um and yeah it was it ended up being a great fit that's great. And how did you cope? You know, it sounds like the first two years, it was a bit of a struggle when it came to the math side of things. Yes. And um, I know for me, you know, if, if there's adversity, like, I guess I'm just asking, what was that like for you? And how did you end up seeing a way through in a positive mm. way? Because it could yeah. be a negative thing, like, well, I'm just, I'm just throwing the towel in. I'm, yeah. I'm going to go off and do something completely different. Yeah. Well, I was about to throw the towel in and go and do air traffic control. Okay. Um, and I had a meeting lined up with an old high school friend's father who was an air traffic controller. Right. Um, and then lockdown was that week. So oh, that, okay. that, that threw that meeting completely off. Um, yeah, it was kind of frustrating because I absolutely loved maths and 
calculus and all that kind of thing. I was just no good at it. Right. But I, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, I, so I'd stay up all night, you know, spending about five times as long to do the work right. as, as my, you know, um, fellow students. Yeah. Um, so I, I could do it. I just took a lot longer. Um, and yes, yeah, so it was kind of frustrating because um, I loved every other aspect of it and like the the job prospects of engineering were just like you know pretty safe and it was a pretty you know straight way forward yeah um and so then i was kind of nervous about going into something different um and you know ditching in a degree that seemed pretty safe because you know parents were pretty happy that i was doing engineering like my dad and my dad's dad and all that kind of sure, thing sure yeah but it's a legacy um, <laughs> yeah well it kind of was um and yeah, then in, ending up going and doing something else ended up being a massive blessing um, because of the where it the opportunities that it, that it ended up introducing to me. Yeah, both in terms of learnings from certain papers and opportunities that came from others and professors that I met that are now advisors to the business today. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, the reason I asked that question and highlight it is that some people listening, because we'll get hundreds of people listening to this maybe thousands. <laughs> and for somebody out there, they're in that hard place. They're in that, what mm. should I do next point? Well, it's such so a th- big decision. Like I was listening to another podcast recently, um, which highlighted, I should be quoting the guy, but I can't quite remember, but the vague, vague gist of it is like, there's like five major decisions in your life that are going to really change it. And it's like what you study and your first job and who you marry and like your first big investment over like a certain amount of value and there was another one um who divorced probably um and yeah it was was those things and Mm. there's like five main decisions that really craft your life and you know that was this it's your first one what do you do after school and it's a it's it's so confusing Mm. like i'm and I didn't even know what a startup was when I was even in second year. Mm-hmm. And so I really think that people should be you know, exposed to different, different ways of um, different opportunities because there's so much more than what I thought was there. Yeah. But th- then the interesting bit is what has it prepared you for? You know, like mm-hmm. the difficult times that you went through in your first and second year. Because let's be honest, startup world isn't easy. Right. There's going to be there's going to be setbacks. There's going to be things that don't work the way you want them to. But if you have that, I guess, mental resilience, which comes only by going through it yourself. I just wonder if we'll see in the future, you might say, or maybe you can say today, well, because I went through that hard time in my second year and then pivoted, it's actually prepared me for what I do now. Mm. Well, pivoting itself is something that is kind of looked at as like somebody just figuring stuff out but it's actually so necessary in life and in mm. business because especially in the in this next generation of you know jobs and the next 20 years of the economy you know it's projected that people aren't just going to have one profession or one career they're going to have so many different so many different ones and um it's it's going to be a lot more dynamic mm. and so i think the act of pivoting is going to be a lot more kind of embraced and welcomed and even sought after yeah because like i'm so we'll get into this later but you know the environmental and social and economical problem that the harakiki industry revitalization is hoping to solve 
that's and the materials industry issues that kiwi fiber is solving those are just some of the issues that i want to solve in my life mm. and there's so many more that keep me up at night that i want to solve through different solutions different ventures however i end up solving them later on mm. um and so <clears throat> yeah then back to that original question i suppose yeah going through hard stuff just kind of does prepare you in terms of that mental resilience and and for whatever life ends up throwing at you yeah yeah totally yeah i've had hard times in my life too and i think i've got young children so i sometimes i wish them all success you know like i want you to i don't know win the the swimming cup and i want Mm. you to do well in this and i want you to get first in this or whatever but actually sometimes as a parent even it's actually beneficial if your child doesn't succeed or Mm. if there's something that knocks them back because then they're going to have the resilience to continue growing. I was reading um, something which was really fascinating. Uh, There was this biodome in the UK, you know, so like a big giant glass building. Mm. I can't remember the name, but you, you may know it. And anyway, they planted trees in it and the trees grew really well. You know, there was, there was no wind, there was no interference, like they're growing straight as can be. They go straight up. And then one day they would just fall over for no foreseeable reason. And they went and looked at the root systems and the root systems were just tiny. So mm. the weight of the tree, they were just toppling over. And the contrast is in the real world, when there's wind and things moving, the roots have to be more solid yeah. and they have to actually dig down into the the earth so what seemed the point is what seemed like an easy solution you know actually led to the death of the tree yeah and actually a bit of adversity the winds of life helped it to grow and be strong and you know i look at some of those trees that are thousands of years old like um up in northland and and over in california and you think mm. oh it's been here for two thousand years it's just incredible absolutely yeah, yeah. and you, you've kind of got to have that wind you know blowing against you and not be bubble wrapped inside a dome yeah. to you know grow that strength and resilience because you know i i it's when when you're a kid and you're kind of you know told you're great all the time and you're winning and you're winning things and you know because i was doing a lot of that i was you know i definitely peaked in year eight <laughs> um i was a kid boy and i won a i won an award called the um called the best all-round senior student right and now i look at that i'm like it was like that's it's kind of the extra pats on the back that you don't really need as a as a kid like oh, mm. this isn't a parenting podcast and but um yeah it's like you've, you've got to be supported and you know and and built up as as a kid to you know have that confidence but then at the same time you don't want to think that you're the best at everything because then you just as soon as you get real criticism later on or you have a rough time at the start of university like like I did and a lot of my friends did then you just don't know how to react with it and even the first couple of years of you know the startup world um, you get people telling you that you're you know the idea is crap and you're gonna fail because you know this then the next thing and like now i can just listen to that and go well just not even listen to it yeah i just go like yeah whatever like you tell me how to run my business because i'd love to know yeah because yeah. it's, it's such a hard <laughs> thing i'm dying to know the answers to these questions but um you know at the start i didn't know how to deal with those mm. and that really affected me yeah um and it was really stressful but now i'm kind of 
a lot more used to it. Mm. Yeah. And I guess you have the, the, the freedom to say, well, thank you for your feedback and then just move on. You know, exactly. like it's, yeah. it's what you think doesn't affect yeah. who I am and, yeah. and my own identity. Yeah. Everyone's got an opinion. Yeah. 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 So um, we're, we've used the word up to, uh, before now, but harakiki, when did it come on your radar? Tell us a little bit about your looking at that as a mm. student and then how did that lead to what you're doing today? Yes, yeah, yeah. So right a couple of minutes ago, I mentioned how I was pivoting from engineering, going into industrial design late, and I went and talked to, I mentioned Tim, and that was um, a professor called Dr. Tim Huber, um, and he was um, he was one of the first uh, lecturers in the um, product design degree, and we were doing one of his papers with, William Morrell, my co-founder, who um, I met in this in this particular course, um, and we it was about materials, material science, and the engineering behind that, which was a level of maths that I just loved because it was problem solving with numbers um, rather than maths that was kind of just maths. Um, it was it was just really applied and it was really good and so we, so I met I met Will and we worked really well together. Um, and it was like the first day I'd ever gotten that paper because we were just such an efficient team. Um, and then we teamed up for a material science paper that was Tim Huber's next paper. Um, and so we did we we did that, and and Tim was like, right, do you boys want the easy material or the hard material or the medium material or how difficult do you want of an assignment? And, you know, I was having a pretty good day. I was in a great mood. I'm like, you know what, Tim, give me the most difficult material you've got. Um, let's go with the hard one because it was an assignment where we were given a waste material and had to build a product out of it, solving an environmental issue and hopefully solving some kind of industrial issue that we encounter in our research. And so he said, right, slapped a couple of cabbage tree leaves down on my desk. And I hadn't seen those since I was mowing the lawns at home. Um, and that kind of became the start of it and then the first slide on our first ever pitch about six months after this moment was a picture of a lawnmower on fire going like you know these fibers are this strong <laughs> <laughs> so rewinding back a bit to the moment w which the idea actually kind of came from we we're given cabbage tree leaves and we were like right what can we make out of this stuff um, so around that time I was then going back to earlier in our conversation, Stephen, um, I was really interested in Formula One um, and cars and planes and boats at the time. Um, and I still was at that point and still am now. But I was aware of some weird companies in Europe starting to use different natural fibres like hemp and linen to create race car parts and boat hulls and skis and skateboards and all of these really interesting dynamic products and industries that I was really interested in. Mm. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. Researched a bit more about that and Tim helped me with that and introduced me to more you know, professors in both New Zealand and um, overseas who, were, who knew something about it. And so we did a bit of research on what ended up being the natural fibre composites industry. Mm. And I don't know what a composite was at that point. Um, I'd heard of like, you know, carbon 
carbon cubs, carbon planes, which was the kind of planes that Dad was interested in, but the carbon fiber versions that were about 100 times the price. Um, and so there was another issue that I was exposed to, the cost of these really high-performance um, composite materials like carbon fiber. And I'd heard of carbon fiber because, you know, it was you could buy carbon fiber car parts and plane parts and... Then I had my grandfather on my mum's side who was building, who used to build boats out of fiberglass. And so all of these memories started rushing back and I was learning about composites again and with this new idea of natural composites. And I went down that wormhole and I was like, hey, I've got this assignment that's due in a couple of weeks um, where I've got to make something from cabbage tree leaves. And I know that leaves have fibres. So we started this really unscalable method of hammering um these cabbage tree leaves until the fibers would pull apart. Yep. And there were these dead cabbage tree leaves that we picked off my the lawn of my student flat. Um, and so we had all these fibers and we went, okay, like, what can we make with this? So we made a few sample pieces. We, like, stitched them together and made, like, a really rough um, material mm-hmm. and infused it with resin um, and we had a, a composite panel. And it was like, well, that's cool. That's probably the first um, cabbage tree leaf fibre composite panel. And it was like, cool. Um, what are we going to make with it? Let's make bigger panels. And we didn't end up doing that because it was you know, really time-consuming to do. But that exposed us from using this waste material that couldn't go through the green bins of the council um, because the fibres were too strong for the... Um, machines that break down all the compost Mm. and all these things are really interesting Um, and then Will and I ended up getting a um, an A on this paper and it was like awesome Um, and we're like you know what what else can we do with this and so we entered a startup incubator um, run by one of the university clubs called Entre. Um, and that was our first pitch. And so we got up and made a we made a business model of how we were going to turn these cabbage tree leaves that we're going to pick up off people's lawns. And right. that was our first scalable, scalable business yeah. model. <laughs> yeah. Um, but later I learned that, you know, you've got to do really unscalable things, even in startups, mm. to understand the problem and the customer and the opportunity and how you're going to scale it. And so that was a learning at the time that I didn't even know I was experiencing. And so we pitched this idea of, hey, we're going to use natural fibres to replace synthetic fibres and composites and all of these industries and we're going to save the world kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, didn't want a thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we had our first experience into startups. Right. And I thought that was really cool. And that's when I learned what a startup was. And this was 2020 at the time. Um, soon after, Will and I went down to um, a place in Invercargill, just out of Invercargill, called Riverton, where there was a flax mill. Um, and we went and talked to the guy there. Um, his name is Vaughan, good fella. Um, and we showed him a cabbage tree leaf, and we were like, Vaughan, do you reckon you can put one of these cabbage tree leaves through your flax stripping machine? And he's like, oh, you boys are dreaming. Let me tell you about what my family used to do. And turned out he was like a fifth-generation flax miller Hmm. um, whose father and grandfather and great-grandfather used to run this really like steampunk looking um, 
over a 150-year-old machine that he had in his shed on his farm. And I'm like, God, this is cool. Um, And that's what really exposed us to starting to learn about this incredible piece of history that was not taught in school about the New Zealand flax industry. Hmm. That's great. Well, I want to go there because that fascinates me. And we started at the beginning talking about kind of cycles of technology. Mm. And um, we're recording this in your factory. So (laughs) um, you gave me a tour before showing me some of the modern technology. Um, Yeah. Why don't you take us back in time? Um, let's let's go. How far back are we going? Like, when did they realize that harakiki or flax was going to be a really useful product? Was it quite early on when people? Well, it was pre-colonization. Yeah. So Maori were using harakiki for waka, mm-hmm. for tools, for ropes, for clothing, for cloaks, for food preservation far before the Europeans came to New Zealand. Yeah. They knew what they had. And harakiki, which... So flax is not actually a flax. It's just called flax because the fibre is similar in, a, similar in appearance to the European flax, which is linen. So there's linen, which is a flax, which is grown in Europe and different parts of the world. And then harakiki is in the lily family, um, which is... And the harakiki is native to... Aotearoa. And so in Te Ao Māori, the harakiki plant is like the plant of life. Mm. It gives roots, it gives gel, oil, seed, and fibre. Mm. And the extracts, like the gels and the oils and the root, were amazing for antiseptic properties, and, um, and they were used in medicine by Māori. And the fibre was used, which is a byproduct of that, um, was used for you know all those uses that I just described. And mm-hmm. so, it was used extensively before Europeans arrived and re- applied this big, ugly, and efficient machinery to it. Right. That's amazing to think. You know, sometimes we well, we're going to come to this, I think. You know, because we fall in love with the new technology mm. like plastic. You know, like and that. Becomes, and plastic is great. Yeah. At certain things. Yeah. And identifying what different materials are best for in the world is something that humanity hasn't cracked yet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. But just to think about, you know, going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that Mm. this is a product that, you know, a natural product that was used for so many different things. Yeah, it's amazing. So, yeah, because I believe, um, having talked with you before we started recording, that initially there was a lot of interest in this as a product, as an export product mm. from New Zealand, right? Like we tend to think these days that it was all um, butter and wool, but this was a major industry, wasn't it? It was very, very significant. And the first that I actually um, noticed it in actual um, education system in New Zealand was in my last semester at university last year, um, in a in a like general business course when we we're learning about New Zealand history and exports, um, and it's a massive piece of New Zealand history that is it's not lost yet, but it's, it could certainly be on its way to being so mm-hmm. because it just wasn't taught in schools and it absolutely should be because it's an incredible part of New Zealand history, and so it was really industrialised when the Europeans arrived in New Zealand and saw how strong it was and they found that it was stronger than the linen which they were 
you know, wearing on their backs. Um, and so they were seeing what the Māori were doing with it, and they were just, you know, blown away. So they imported um, all of their sheep and cattle and, you know, started that industry here um, while cutting down all these beautiful native trees to put the farmland there. Um, and they started building machinery to process this um, this harakeku fibre on mass scale. And so they ended up putting flax processing plants up and down the country in basically every town in New Zealand. And most of them have gone. Many of them have been turned into cafes or sold for scrap metal. Um, and then there's a couple that are still around. There's the Foxton one and the Riverton one that are still around that still do function. And they're now within um, historic trusts, which is amazing because it gets, um, you know, it welcomes people to learn about the history. And, you know, there's school trips that go there, and that's absolutely phenomenal. Um, but the preservation of it has not been that well done because most of them are gone. And that also means that most of the industry has gone. And so that's what's made it so hard for people like me who want to revitalise a piece of you know New Zealand history um, and bring it into the 21st century. And so we've managed to pull together a few machines from around the place um, to build up plant to be able to process um, harakiki for composite applications. Um, and so that's basically what we're doing at the moment. Mm. Um, but yeah, absolutely incredible history to it. Yeah, yeah, it's great to know. Um, it'd be interesting to interview some of those people like that fifth generation person, you know, just about the industry that it was and mm. what life was like. And you were showing me a letter before where someone had handwritten to you um, or I think to Will maybe saying, yeah. I remember in the 1940s when my father would take, you know, we would get on the horse and the, and the harakiki would be brought to the mill to be milled. And yeah, it's an amazing um, little snippet of mm. history that, yeah, you're right. We don't really talk about it or think about it. So let's um, work out how you're changing that. <laughs> what exactly is Kiwi Fiber doing today? And yeah, what are the use cases that you're looking at um, for this product? Yeah, so Kiwi Fiber's vision is to essentially build a world where natural renewable resources solve problems of industry. Um, and how we do that is we provide natural fibre composite materials to replace carbon fibre and fibreglass by using New Zealand's most brilliant fibre, um, harakiki. And to do that, we're working with the Harakeke Industry Alliance, which is a non-legal entity at the moment, um, established by Ngāti Ruapāni Iwi in the Hawke's Bay region. Um, and the end goal of that um, alliance is to basically build a Harakeke cooperative not too dissimilar to Fonterra and Zespri um, and with their current foothold in New Zealand economy. But where there's no reason why Harakiki can't be revitalised into an industry just as big as wool and kiwi fruit and dairy, mm -hmm. because is it's just such a rich plant. There's not there's the, there's the fibre which we're primarily interested in it, but there's the seed oil, there's the gel, there's the root extract that are all incredibly high value for so many different industries. Mm -hmm. 
That's great. And you showed me some of the material that gets that comes out and you know, holding it and trying to pull it apart. Like it's really strong, right? Like the, the fibers themselves are kind of intertwined. Yeah, the fi- the fiber properties alone are just absolutely fantastic. There are there's been so many studies which we've been able to learn from in the world of academia who have looked at Harakiku fibre and basically concluded that this is absolutely amazing and it's perfect for composites and it just needs an industry, it needs a supply chain and it needs the market to be developed and until the last couple of years the world hasn't been ready for it. The world needs it and the world's needed it for a very long time but the world of business is really hard to balance with all the rest of it and that is what I spend my days doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully this podcast will be one small part of that. The interesting thing is, you know, we're talking about a natural product mm. as opposed to, you know, a synthetic or plastic product. And I think you're right. There's definitely a trend towards wanting to do things that are natural, um, you know, that aren't taking away from the planet, but are actually using what's there anyway. Mm. But in another way so mm. you're kind of hitting well hopefully the the wave of um knowledge about that yeah well resource-based industries don't need to be so extractive mm. like with many fibers that are produced today it involves laying a like sowing the seed of the plant through an entire field in a monoculture and then driving a combine harvester powered by diesel across it you know every year and then processing that and it doesn't need to be so extractive Mm. so the way that harakeke is going to be revitalized is through basically we're not we're not going to be doing an entire monoculture planting that's what was done back in the day when it was new zealand's major industry Um, but the problem with that was that obviously aside from the lack of biodiversity as soon as there was a disease, it would rip through the entire plantation. And at some points, it sent New Zealand into a recession in the late 1800s. Um, and that is, we've, we've moved on from that. There is the research now to support um, an alternative architecture of planting, um, which is basically what the Harakeke Industry Alliance, the HIA, or the Harakeke Community Alliance, um, works with. Um, and so it doesn't need to be so extractive industry anymore. And so we're working to plant it on wetlands, on marginal land, on the land that's been destroyed by floods through um, through the North Island, um, on destocked land near waterways on farms to restore that land and to give farmers additional revenue streams on top of what they're already doing. And that doesn't sound particularly scalable, but Harakeke is a lot more fast-growing and resilient and um, fruitful in terms of the actual output of the resource because the, they need to be maintained, just like any crop, just like any animal, just like any plant. But the maintenance is the harvest. And right. so <laughs> yeah, and so it's, it's an additional on top of what farmers are already doing um, as its own industry. And the whole architecture of this and the story is... is really special and then on top of that the resources that it provides are absolutely fantastic so harakeke fibers are much longer than most other natural fibers which means that you've got that pull strength that you were talking about Mm -hmm. it's got an incredible tensile strength um it's it's 
it's so much stronger than most other natural fibers um, and it's just got an awesome future and so piecing together all of these um, all of these factors and all of these parts of the system that we're building is a really exciting aspect yeah yeah it'll be really fun to watch it grow because I, I see what you're saying you know and, and the fact is there's probably use cases and parts of the plant that we don't even know how good it is yet you yeah know, like we need to do some more research into the roots and the oils mm. and the you know the flowers and the all the other bits as well um i it's it's really fun to talk with you because we got to know each other a couple of years ago and i've been there kind of from the beginning really talking with you and mm. then helping you because i'm the voice of the podcast but i'm also a lawyer so providing legal documents you know and helping startups so just reflecting on your journey what advice would you have for someone, say, two years ago? You know, like, if you could go back and, and talk to yourself, what, what would you yeah. be saying? Make plans, but totally expect them to change. Right. <laughs> like, the world is so... The world is far too dynamic for making plans. And, I, and, and the same with goals, even. Like, I think it's important to set goals to make sure that your life or your business or your relationships are headed in the right direction. But I've kind of stopped setting micro goals along the way because I just take the opportunities that come and run with them. And I don't have blinkers on. I'm totally open to, you know, whatever comes my way. And, yeah, so I guess my... And, that, and, that, and a lot of those... A lot of the opportunities that have sprouted into... Um, opportun- a lot of the opportunities that have sprouted into really promising leads in terms of business and personal life even have come from just going uh, stuff it I'll go and do that like mm. if I set the goal because I first met you Stephen at a um, workshop um, at the university run by Dorinda Britton and I was on design thinking and it was one of my lecturers that I really got on with um, Matt Smith that actually you know, said, Ben, you've got to go to this. Right. Um, and yeah, we were sitting at the same table. That's right. Yeah, I yeah. remember that. Yeah. And then you handed me the um, the business card for the Seeds podcast. Yep. And I was like, yep. oh, this is cool. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's how I learned about a lot of, um, you know, really exciting people in Christchurch. But what I'm getting at is like, if that was on a university day, it was like a Tuesday, I had like a couple of labs and lectures and I think I skipped a few to go to that. But the thing is, if I set the goal to get like an A average or a B plus average or whatever I was aiming for at that time, if I set that goal for academic performance, I would have gone, right, no, I'm going to a lecture. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go to this workshop thing that doesn't actually get me going in any direction. Yeah. But the connections and the learnings and the inspiration, the motivation that I got from that workshop that I went to instead of my lectures, that's what drove so many more opportunities. So I guess the piece of advice I'd give to somebody that's you know two years behind me or myself two years ago just like run with the opportunities that come Mm. yeah that's great advice and i think it's yeah for people listening they'll definitely be able to take something from that because i think as long as you have the right attitude to life then there will be opportunities and i think you're right sometimes people focus too much on the i got to get this these grades Mm. instead of i got to develop the connections and networks which ultimately help a lot (laughs) yeah yeah like if you're if you're you know absolutely driving after an a in an assignment and you're trying to crack the whip on your teammates you know that's that's a way to do it and that's a way to get your a but you're going to piss off your teammates 
who could potentially become co-founders yeah. and business partners or one of them might be studying law so you might not necessarily associate with them but they'd, they'd be your lawyer yeah. you know in a in a couple of years and so you've like just just take the things that come and just you know run with them and don't be narrow focused onto a you know a micro goal like be aware of the bigger picture yeah that's great well ben it's been great to talk with you and hear about your life journey and that's why i love doing the podcast just to be able to download someone's you know your childhood mm. moving around from place to place what did that prepare you for the fact that you've got this legacy of engineering and creativity and building things from your grandfather your father and then you know through your teenage years but then also i really enjoyed hearing and thank you for sharing and being vulnerable about the second year it wasn't working out mm. and then to be able to go through that hardship and be able to find something that would work and that was better suited and now it's yeah it's just exciting to have this conversation today at the start of an industry or at the start of a regeneration of an industry maybe is a better way to say it because it sounds like it's an exciting phase to be moving into, not mm. just for your company, but as a broader, you know, movement of, hey, let's go back to this natural resource that we have forgotten. Exactly. Like, none of it's new ideas. It's just existing ideas positioned in a way to build a system that in itself is, whether the word you want to use is revolutionary or, or new or revitalizing it it's just logic put together in a package that the world hasn't quite you know seen in that structure before and it's really funny how different things kind of come into play and end up eventuating because there's all these funny symmetries that you end up finding yeah yeah, yeah. it's cool definitely well we'll put a link to your website in the show notes and then you can send me anything else we'll put it as links so if people want to explore more um, we probably got people listening who are interested in the industry yeah absolutely um, then they can cook through and and find out more but thanks so much for joining me today i really appreciate your time well, thanks for having me and thanks for coming to see the workshop <laughs> I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ben. If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the other episodes at theseeds.nz. Until next time, kakiteano. Mm-hmm.